Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... I know we're all you know, we're all adjusting, and and some people are some people are doing better than others. But um, <laughs> but um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't. And is this going to be forever? I mean, that's the other. This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number six hundred thirty. I'm your host, Matthew Winner. We're on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/MatthewCWinner if you want to support the show. Today, I'm joined by Linda Sue Park. Linda Sue's newest middle grade novel, Prairie Lotus, takes place in Dakota Territory in the 1880s. Fans of Laura Ingalls Wilder will note that this is the same time and location of Little Town on the Prairie. That isn't by coincidence. Linda Sue was also an emphatic fan of Wilder's Little House books and would often imagine herself in the world of those stories. This was a world, though, that would have harshly rejected Linda Sue and her family. In a novel nearly a lifetime in the making, Linda Sue shares how she reconciled her childhood love of an iconic book series with a need to hear the voices who were silenced throughout Wilder's writings. In Park's words, all kids need books about all kids. Please welcome my guest, Linda Sue Park, author of Prairie Lotus. I'm an author of books for young readers. I have the best job in the world. Um, And I am here today um, to talk about my new historical fiction middle grade novel, Prairie Lotus. I'm so glad that you're back, Linda Sue. And when we last talked, you sort of teased out, oh, I can't wait for you to read this middle grade. And that now that it's here and uh, sort of a look behind the curtain, we were trying to coordinate when to record this amid schools starting back up and not knowing what model we'd be following for for school. I'm, I'm just glad that now we're able to sit down and, and have a chat. Welcome back. Thank you. It's lovely to talk to you again. And I so appreciate the work that you do to um, connect um, young readers to to books, not just your own students, but, you know, your your presence, um, your digital presence is is also, you know, reaching a whole lot more people. Well, books continue to come out, and I feel like I, like many, continue to not help myself from being so excited about what is coming out and how then we can continue to get these books to readers. Keep problem solving. Keep putting books in kids' hands however we can. 
Yes, we are certainly living in interesting times for that. <laughs> so tell me about Prairie Lotus or tell us for those that that have not read the book yet. I should we should start there. Uh, tell a little bit about Prairie Lotus, if you don't mind. Prairie Lotus is, as I said, historical fiction for middle grade readers. And the setting is 1880 in um, Ocheti Shakawi homeland. That is a Native American nation that more commonly is called the Sioux Nation. And the uh, setting is what the U.S. government today calls South Dakota. So that setting was very important to me. And the main character, the protagonist, is a 14-year-old girl named Hannah Edmonds. And Hannah has come to La Forge in Dakota Territory with her father. Hannah is half Chinese and half white. So it is a, um, a prairie experience story told with a, uh, told through a different lens, I'll put it that way. Linda Sue, I don't know if I mentioned this to you last time, but knowing that this was a book that um, takes inspiration from, exists in the same world as the Little House on the Prairie books, uh, I don't know that I mentioned to you that I... I had not ever read those books. As a child, it was really when I became a librarian that I even read the first book. I know that you have a different relationship to those books, but I think that in that way, um, as, as readers may too, having read or not read the book, we, we end up interacting with this with, with your story in a very different way. But I wonder first how, how that series, Laura Ingalls Wilder's series, uh, played a role in your life and ultimately in influencing the story you shared today? Um, it's a very important question and a very complicated and difficult answer. Um, I uh, loved those books as a child, and I have met many children of immigrants and immigrants themselves who had the same response. It was kind of like uh, we were looking, all of us, for some kind of roadmap to how to be an American. Okay, so, you know, because we were not, you know, we, we had families who were from different places and who didn't understand or know American waves, and we were, we were all desperately trying to figure out this place that we were living in. I was, I'm the child of immigrants. So it's, it's, it seemed like, among other titles, the Little House books were providing that kind of map. Okay, so um, the things that, that Laura described doing the everyday parts of everyday life, um, you know, I, I seized on like so many other readers so that we tried making the maple syrup in the snow candy. And, and we, we, you know, tried building little log cabins with corn cobs or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever she did, you know, instantly was something that I wanted to try to do. Um, even at that young age, there were parts of the book that made me uncomfortable or unhappy. And I have vivid memories. I was a rereader as well as a reader, right? I would reread my favorite books over and over. And I do have clear memories of knowing, you know, on rereading, knowing where the parts that I didn't like would come up and holding the pages together so that I could skip reading those pages. No kidding. So I, yeah, I have that memory and it usually had to do with Ma and, um, you know, and in, 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 a, in a few ways, um, uh, the standards of behavior for little girls 
just seemed to me to be outrageous. <laughs> And it was always Ma, it was usually Ma who was reinforcing, you know, the, the, what Laura should behave like. And I thought she was so unfair in many incidents. So that was one. And another was, of course, her attitude towards Native Americans, the Native Americans portrayed in the book. And what that meant to me, it was very personal. It wasn't this abstract thing um, because... Um, the Native Americans depicted by the Garth Williams illustration always had dark eyes and dark hair. Now, I hope people know now that that is not true of Native Americans living in this country who come in every sort of, you know, hue. <laughs> but uh, that was what was depicted in the books. And I have dark eyes and dark hair. And to me, that translated as um, that Ma would never have let Laura ever become friends with me. You know, and in my imagination, I was doing, you know, I was doing all those activities for real, not just my, my imagination, but I was also doing the equivalent of what kids today call fan fiction. I was in my head writing story after story after story where Laura was my best friend and we did all these things together. And then I would come to the books and realize, you know what, Ma would have never let me even close to her, right? Um, so then on later readings, when I read them to my own children or when I read them as an adult, then I realized how problematic they are, right? Yeah. Yeah. On a level that I didn't realize when I was a child. And now I have to figure out, what do I do with that? What do I do with this beloved series now that I'm an adult and recognize the problems that are in these books? And it was something I wrestled with for decades because it wasn't just for me a matter of, and I know some people have been able to say, been able to say, oh, I love those books too, but they're, I'm done. They're do I'm done. They're off my shelves. I'm not recommending them. I'm not reading them to my kids, blah, 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 you know, all that, um, which I fully support. But for me, they were a huge part of how and why I became a writer. All those stories, and it was those books in particular, there were a few other series, but those books in particular, they they shaped how I first started telling stories, first to myself, and then, you know, eventually in writing. So, it was, it would, it was much more, it was much, those books were much more entangled in my writing DNA um, than, than it seems they were to others who knew them as readers, if you see what I mean, and were able to say, okay, I'm done with those. Um, and so I spent so, uh, so many years thinking, how do I, you know, how do I, how do I deal with this? How do I, you know, respond? And the, finally, the result was Prairie Lotus. Okay, I'm going to keep all of the wonderful things I loved about the Little House books, like the focus on daily life, that literature doesn't have to be about big, important events. You know, literature can be about just everyday life. Um, I will keep the elevation of women's work. You know, how it wasn't just, you know, men who do the things that make a, make a nation, you know, that... Um, that the emphasis on women's work um, is worthy of literature, I'm gonna keep those parts. And then I'm going to address the parts that made me so unhappy. And that's a very, very long answer to your question about I, how yeah. Fairy Lips came to be. I think that this sounds to me, Linda Sue, like this was a book, speaking of your fan fiction from childhood, that this was a book in a, in a way that you've been working on your whole life. Exactly. I always say that. I say I've been working on this book for 50 years. Right. So how could you not 
how could you not write it where others do interact with Laura Ingalls Wilder's books uh, as readers only. And so walking away from them as readers is an easier decision. As a librarian, I read one book and I've, I've read a lot of the, the commentary that um, Dr. Debbie Reese has shared. And so I'm very aware of the criticism of the books and, and that is enough for me to not have them on the shelves. But I, again, don't have the relationship to reconcile with and that you gave us this gift of this book and, and of Hannah's story in this way uh, as a means of, of your reconciliation with with what it means to grow up and have these books be important to you, but also find space for for you or a kid like you to exist in this world, I think is is something that that we all can be very grateful for. And, and I think it can serve beautifully as a model for, for children, for your readers specifically that, that do have this opportunity to, to ask, how do I fit into stories? How can I write in, write myself, my experience, my family, uh, my truths into a story? I think that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, one, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do on a more, I don't know what you want to say, um, global level rather than personal mm was um, um, I wanted to work with the idea of the danger of the single story, which is the phrase that um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie has made famous through her TED Talk, okay, that we have these, um, they ha- we have these stories in our collective imagination that are in effect single stories, and that's really, really dangerous. Um, and this is not an easy concept to grasp, because single stories often don't seem like they're single stories, but but they are. And the um, the image, uh, the 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 collective image that we have, or knowledge, or sh- shared knowledge that we have, of the settling of the United States is in fact a single story. You know, definitely. What- Right. What I got in school was Manifest Destiny and, you know, uh, um, the you know, United States spreading from sea to shining sea and so forth. And because I do write historical fiction, um, I have a lot of questions that I ask myself. And one of them is as a way of addressing a single story in terms that are maybe easier to grasp is who else was there? You know, we have this story and who else was there that we don't that we don't hear about. So I think that the Little House books and the television series and a lot of other books and Hollywood have given us a basically a single story of how the United States spread from east to west coast, right? And I want to dismantle that single story and 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 have Prairie Lotus be a way of saying to young readers, okay, what you have learned in social studies class, which is also what your teachers learned, so it's not entirely their fault, you know, um, is basically kind of a single story of, uh, and, um, and when I do this book, I did this book recently for teachers, you know, I say like certain phases of American history, you know, how do you see them through a different lens? How do you think about including other stories so that you don't have a single story? So um, something like, um, um, you know, the era of exploration and discovery, you know, as I was taught uh, during 
social d during um, my, my years in elementary school um, through a different lens. That's the first attempt at genocide. Mm. Wow. Okay. Right. I mean, do you, I'm not saying that you have to flip entirely, but I'm saying make space to tell these other stories. So your, your, your second wave, which is, which is nation building, you know, which is, you know, the, how, and, um, um, you know, that's, um, invasion, you know, um, it's, it's, um, manifest destiny is the second attempt at genocide. Oh yeah. So the nation building part, that's, um, that's slavery. You know, that's, um, that's how, you know, the, the, the tremendous economic impact of slavery and how it enabled the United States to become the economic and political power in the world today. You know, this whole business about getting our independence from England, that's what's emphasized, right? These, yes. these brave white people in the revolution. Well, you know, you know what, what made that possible? <laughs> what made that possible was the enslavement, you know, of, and brutalization of, of millions of people. And so, you know, just how, how, can, how can we help? And, and the, the thing about, the, thing, the reason it's important is because when we get a single story, when we don't get the other points of view, that has ramifications right through history. And the problems that we have in our society today are the result, I mean, directly of not enough stories and not being familiar mm -hmm. with enough stories. Hey there, book nerds. You know what's even better than hearing bookmakers share stories of how their ideas became the stories you love? Having those stories in your home, your classroom, your library, or your life to be enjoyed over and over. Bookshop.org allows you to purchase your favorite books from the show and support local bookstores while doing it. I even maintain lists of all the books shared each season, so it's easy to find what you're looking for. Visit MatthewCWinner.com and click on Shop, or use the link in the show notes to find your next favorite story. from from tyrant rule but um how that centers us on this freedom narrative and that we deserve this freedom and and, and these rights and these things when we as you're saying aren't aren't necessarily looking at who who pays that price yeah to earn right. that thing i think about with this time specifically um with the little house time with the prairie lotus time with this time i think about uh from my experience the first phrase that comes to mind is the phrase the westward expansion yes and with that comes and this is not this is not to say that 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 as you're saying, single story, there are parts of the story that this is all right, that these things are here, that we are looking at this story for opportunity. And it was opportunity for some. And um, I think about the music of Aaron Copeland, how I have that sort of, I, I can't not hear his music when I think of this Westward expansion. But to know that we're expanding onto land, as you were saying, from sea to shining sea, onto land where people are already inhabiting that land. 
then it's being taken or um, where we're setting up towns as what to bring us back to this story where, where um, Hannah and her father are looking at where they can settle and where they can open up this shop and having to make sure is, is this going to be safe for us to be here? Is it going to be safe for Hannah to be able to go to school um, and ultimately to to pursue making dresses like her mom taught her? There are questions that that you ask through your characters openly. And by asking those questions, I, I see you doing that work of of trying to break us free from this single story, but having the readers sort of prompting the readers to be asking questions in the profundity of that is that I don't remember ever being told to ask questions when I was learning history. It was like, here's the stuff you have to learn. This is the way things happened. We, we didn't. uh, And that again may have been the way my teachers were taught too, but we, we didn't, we weren't provided the space to ask. Yeah. But what about, cost of doing these things to other people that didn't benefit from the choices you made. Right, exactly. I mean, so so that's the and you know, I find that kids really get this like when I'm talking about a single story to elementary school kids. I say, "Did you ever have an argument with a friend or a sibling and you had to both go in front of an adult authority and the other person, your big brother, or your big sister, got to tell their story first and then you didn't get to tell yours?" And I say, maybe they didn't even lie. Maybe they told the story as they saw it. But your point of view is missing. Does that feel fair? Right? So, I mean, so they totally get it. They totally get, I'm like, and that's what sometimes happens with with stories about our history. One person gets to, to tell their story first, and the people in authority say, okay, that's it. That's what we will accept as the truth. And you're left going, hey, wait a second. Right. There's many truths. Right, you're not right. getting the whole thing. It's not that yours is true and others are are, are false or right. are are working against it. Is that that's the complexity. And you're right. Children are so ready for that. They are already asking questions about their world to give them the gift of saying, actually, things are really complicated, that things can be many truths can exist within the same space and at odds with one another. And that's what makes truth complex. That's right. And also that, that, that the many different truths that exist make a more complete truth. Because if you have a single story, as in the example of, you know, the older sibling or whatever, it's actually a lie. You know, a single story may contain one truth, but without all the others by itself, it's an untruth. It's a falsehood. It's a lie. And so that's, that's a lot of what we get in our history. And, and it makes, it does make things more complicated and more difficult. Right. But, um, I mean, that's, that's part of our responsibility, I think, as human beings and the supposedly, you know, most intelligent creatures on this planet, (laughs) It's uh, it's our responsibility to to deal in complications, to figure complications out. It would be much easier if things were good, bad, you know, good, evil, whatever you want to call them. You know, if it was just that easy to pick one side or other, and it's not. And it's complicated, and um, it's a sign of um, 
a lively mind and curiosity and an open heart to say, hey, yes, I will, I will deal with that complication. I want the complete truth, even if it's harder to figure out. And to there are there is too much that happens in this book for for us to talk about point by point. And certainly, uh, I also have having listened to the audiobook so quickly, perhaps faster than any audiobook I've listened to before. Um, the feeling of just being there with Hannah and and feeling this story. I want to move carefully through plot points so as not to to share too much, but there are definitely things that I want to bring up for folks to not have spoiled about the story, but but to to be watching for and anticipating that I think are so wonderful going on in this book. Um I want to talk about I want to talk first about making sure the town would be safe for Hannah and dad to move in and for Hannah to go to school. What kind of, um, I don't know, there must have been an awful lot of research around this book to sort of make sure, is this a place that that Hannah wouldn't be attacked in some way, persecuted in some way, but would it be able to have space? And yet she goes to school and one by one, as parents find out that this girl is in this school, they just draw their cl- their students out, draw their children out of school, but the teacher remains, and sort of the 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 law or the interpretation of the law remains. There's things like that that you've woven into this book that feel so well researched and so just erring on the side of truth. So I'd love to hear a little bit about about finding a space for Hannah to be in this town. Right. So um, the reason that Papa decides to move them to this town is because that he knows the justice of the peace in the town. Right. Right. So, and he says, I know him. He's a fair guy. You know, he's fair. Um, So he will, he will not hold it against me that I married a Chinese woman and not hold it against you that you're half Chinese. That was his, so that, that's, you know, that in itself is, um, you know, again, you know, kids, kids, they won't, I don't think, think this consciously, maybe some of them will, but most of them won't, but it's like, it's top down, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Your principal at your school, your head of your family, your, the, the leader of your, of your athletic team, you know, that's, that's who sets the culture. Um, and and so that's why that's what Papa was hoping, that with this fair guy in charge, maybe this town will be safer than some of the other ones that we've gone to. And and the truth is that you don't know in, in, in any situation, whether you're a person of color, whatever your marginalization is, if you are, you know, um, uh, um, not gender binary, if you um, have um, some kind of disability, you know, you go to these places and you will this be safe for me or will this at least be welcoming to me? Will this even be accessible to me, you know, so you don't know in so many of these, you know, I, I go to, I go to conferences, you know, um, and, and, and of course people in marginalized communities are accustomed to this. It's, it's not to say that we ever get used to it. Um, but we do know to expect that at some point during, during the weekend conference, we will have some kind of unpleasant encounter. That's just the way it is. We know that. Oh gosh. 
That's right. We I'm know. sorry to hear that. That is not something I've ever heard someone say before. And it, it makes me confront how I just walk through a conference, never even fearing that at all. I'm just like, well, yeah. at some point, too many people are going to say hi and I'm, wanna, I'm just going to want to be in my room by myself. Right. Which sounds right. quite an opposite experience. Yes, that's right. Um, so that there is going to be at some point, um, and it's usually, you know, a, a microaggression, not a, not a, not, it's not like running into somebody wearing a clan robe, you know, mm. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there, that, that, so, so, so that's what, what it is for Hannah that I wanted to try to get across that, you know, they have these high hopes and yet, and yet, you know, that, that, that there, there, that, that there is always the possibility. And of course, as an Asian American, I, um, uh, these these happened. This thing, kinds of thing, happened to me on a level that is, um, I don't know what you want to say, much milder, um, mm. not as malevolent as as experienced by some other um, marginalized um, people. Um, just something simple like, and it's almost always well intentioned. I mean, not almost always. Often it's well intentioned. Like the many teachers who say to me. I'm so glad for your books because I had this darling Korean girl in my class and I'm just so happy that I have these mirror books to give her, ah. which is wonderful. But then I want to say, and you share them with your other students too, right? Because I didn't write them just for that girl. I did write it for her. You know, she's in the front row, but, but your other students from the dominant culture need these books perhaps even more than that student does. You know, that sort of, it's not, you know, it, <laughs> It sounds. Yeah, I hear I, it. I yeah. hear the the well. The, we're doing an awful lot of talking about well-intentioned people, yes. which is great. <laughs> but we do. We are also. I think that that more people are waking up. More white people are waking yeah. up to the fact that this is a time to recognize that that it is a privilege to be comfortable, and that yeah. the well-intentioned isn't isn't good enough, isn't far enough. Right, right. So, so I, I, I hear that, and I, um, I so, hope that other people that are hearing that too can, can, can understand the, that it, it is of great value for books to be mirrors in, in myriad ways to children, but it is, it is, it is also very, very important to have books that, that show everyone in a school, even if your school doesn't appear to, to show much diversity at all. Right. So my, my little thing there is all kids need books about all kids. There you go. Oh, you, that is, I'm writing that down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so of course the, the incident where the parents pull their children's out of school was inspired by Ruby Bridges. Yes. Um, as was the teacher who agreed to stay in school and teach her, you know, and, um, and I wanted, I also wanted that teacher to have some complexity to her and to reflect and, you know, to reflect how, you know, she's on her own learning curve of where good intentions, um, become, uh, good actions and, and aren't, and that, that, that this is not a, um, this, it's not a condition. It's a series of choices, right? So that like I keep uh, posted on my um, laptop, which, which is where I do most of my work, that simply says anti-racist. And I have another one that says anti-bias because it's, it's to remind me, you know, to, to try to make choices every single day with that at the forefront of my mind. Right. Yes. Um, and, and I still make 100 mistakes every week, <laughs> but um, it does also become more of a habit. To make right? sure that we are, viewing the world through the lens 
and that we are always wearing those glasses to view through those lens, the lenses of anti-bias and anti-racist practices. And and for me as well, I mean, I know I know it's probably hardest for for white people, but um, I didn't grow. I mean, I grew up as I said Asian, and um, so that comes with its own set of biases, if you will. Um, and so and so we all we all need to do this, and we, and it's very difficult if you did not, you know, it's it's a matter of training your mind to do to think in a different way than you have been raised with, and that is really hard for anybody. Yeah, I think about. Um... We're going to just be able to weave in and out of your book because it's so, even though it takes place in 1880, it, it's, it's, we're still confronting the same issues and you're writing it through uh, a lens of, a, of an individual writing now, of course. But I, I think about how the um, Native American women that Hannah sees and, 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 and learns about the, are they called prairie turnips? I'm trying to remember yeah. from, yeah, 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 about how there's an incident where um, she mentions something to her dad and, and Papa of course says, well, we have to tell this to the authority and you get a, a very, what really stuck out to me remembering the story was a, a very um, focused use of the word them, they, them, they know better. They did this. And I don't know if that's if that was I, I can't even because I listened to the audiobook. I can't even remember if that was exactly the language or if that's just what I walked away from. They should have known better. They know they're not supposed to be here. They are supposed to have these permits or be here. Right. You, you you introduce the uh, you introduce the knowledge to our readers and to, you know, me, a 40 year old reader as well, that, uh, you know, when we had when we were developing these um, reservations, we were also saying not only is this land reserved for you but that's where i want you to stay yes exactly uh, and if you're going to come out you really need to have these special permissions and special whatevers and maybe it's okay if it's women but definitely it's not okay if it's men that are coming off of this reservation and and where i want to to applaud you to linda sue is that you do it all with such a i don't want to say without a heavy hand but you 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 really speak that information matter of factly, whether it's Papa saying, well, Hannah, you know, these are the rules that we're living under or, or, or the, the justice saying they know that this is the expectation in that way you're communicating to, to those readers. These are the rules that are guiding the people here, but there's also a lot of unspoken stuff. And we, have unspoken rules of how we walk through the world as well. If we are, uh, if we are white, or if we are a person of color, we we all are walking. As you're saying about walking through this conference, right. you're walking through these conferences with different rules. Right. Yeah. I just um, felt that was just handled. Uh, again, I just felt like you you have a master hand at writing that. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, I think that it's something that I really, really wrestled with because one question that I'm still asking myself um, as I do this um, social justice work all the time is what is the what is the line between um, between, you know, what people call allyship or co-conspirator or colleague and white saviorism? Oh, yes. We want people to do the work of dismantling um, the dominant culture is the one who puts the rules in place. 
So they need to be the ones to dismantle them. And yet, so this is something I wanted to explore, but with both the teacher and with um, with Mr. Harris and with Hannah. And so I tried very hard in my within my understanding in a couple of different ways to to ensure that it wasn't to the best of my ability, you know, white saviorism, right? So that was the third scene that I was going to play. I had three scenes right. written down, and it was it was school, and it was this interaction with the the Native American women, and the third one, which it sounds like you're you're hitting on right here, is when Papa tells Hannah, "I don't know if I married your mom because she's an Asian woman, and the stereotype is that Asian women are like." quiet around the house and able to do all this work and whatever. And he's confronting that. And I thought I have never heard this confronted in children's books as well as in my life. I thought, Oh my word. And you just sort of drop it. It just is there when it's supposed to come up. Well, I hope so. And yet, you know, different people have, so for example, with when Hannah goes to Papa and says, you can't report them, Papa. Right. You know, um, she's, she's actually, I didn't see it as a scene of not white saviors because she's not white, but as her um, as her trying to be a savior to the Native Americans. And yet I have heard from Native Americans who said that scene was way too white saviory. Wow. OK. Yeah, like, wow. You know, like, OK, so I tried really hard. And, it, it, and it, if it didn't, you know, if it didn't succeed for some people, it didn't succeed. Um, and likewise, people have said that Bess stepping in at the end. Right. To go and yeah. talk women in the town that that was white saviorism okay um which was really interesting to me because that was that part is something i discussed over and over with my friends mostly my friends of color to say how do i make this not white saviorism and one of my friends said you have it be her idea and you have her push you know you have her push that white girl to do that thing Mm. okay um and yet some people have said no why does best get to be the hero at the end right um so so, so, you know, so it's, it, it, but, it, but, but it's these, to every reader, right? We all are, we are putting right. ourselves in that story. I am walking alongside Hannah or the people in that town as a reader asking, where am I in this story and how do I perceive what's going on? So, so the going back to the many truths, it's sort of like, well, yeah, all of your readers are right. Every single one that has whatever reaction you have, um, is right because that's what's true for you. And as a writer, um, you can only do the best you can and confront and then have listening ears to the feedback you receive so that it can hopefully inform how you write the next thing. Right. And it's, it's, it is, it's, I've always said that, you know, that I hope my books are more questions than answers, Mm. that they start conversations, you know, that the kids ask themselves, what would I have done here? Or, um, you know, if you say, oh, I would have been like best, I would have helped, you know, books are, um, and I've said this before, perhaps even with you, that um, for, for, to me, and why I love children's literature so much is that um, books are a safe, safe place to practice at life. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that you, if you read enough, you are in all these different situations in books and you're almost never going to get an exact one-on-one correlation in life. And yet you will have practiced or experienced the kinds of emotions. You know, am I brave enough to stand up and say something? You know, would I really do that over and over again in books? And hopefully that they will they will provide that practice. So when something comes up in life, you will have that that training behind you. (laughs) 
you write a lot of different stories and different stories being um, significant to you or extensions of, of your own thinking or even your own experiences as, as you continue to write. How was this book for you compared to others? Was this more challenging? Did you feel, having written it, as, you, as we sort of said, over this 50-year time period, did you feel like you were able to share the story you wanted? How, how, did, how do you feel coming out of it? Um, I, I knew on one level that, as you say, you know, this 50-year thing, and I was expecting, and, and, I, and I was looking at this book to, as, to somehow um, respond or reconcile to this gigantic issue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Identity and social justice and all of these things. And I knew that no one book was ever going to be able to do that. Mm. So I went into it knowing that my best job would still not be completely satisfactory. I mean, I hate to say that because I don't want people to think that it's a bad book. I don't think it's a bad book. <laughs> no, I think it's a phenomenal book. It just, it, it, for me, the reason why I brought it up is knowing for me that it just went it was so compelling. I couldn't stop listening, as I said, and it just felt like you brought up massive topics. Um, let me say it this way. The the things that I brought up that were like, whoa, these are big, big things to talk about. Reading that was not unlike teaching and how in any number of times during the day, there are these little moments that are huge. Wow, we could talk about this forever. And Yet life moves forward, and that's what happens with Hannah, too. Life moves forward. We have to have this moment with Dad, and then we have to move forward, uh, knowing that we'll have a chance in the future to, to come back to it. Um, this felt to me like I'm, I'm waiting for you to be like, and I have four more books in this series that I'm going to be writing. It just felt like I, I, it, I, I was so grateful for Hannah's story and the feeling walking away that this is a world I would like to return to. And that felt like a gift that you as a child got from Laura Ingalls Wilder, wanting to come back to Laura's story and be in her world. And it felt to me like I never read those books, but I got that feeling with you, whether intended or not. I wanted to, uh, I looked forward to knowing what Hannah's life is like after this moment in the story. And I was grateful for that. Um, I, you know, I, obviously the, 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 the Wilder books, were, you know, were a series of seven books and more after she, after she passed. Um, and I, I certainly think that Hannah could have more stories, you know, um, um, I don't, I haven't, I haven't decided. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> you don't need to decide. It's okay. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So, and of course, of course, what happened was that, uh, and this was really interesting. So many of the incidents of racism in the book are are from my life, and I gave them to Hannah. Right. Mm. So, um, um, par parents did not pull their children out of school wherever I went, but I got asked about my eyes all the time. Mm. You know, and um, things like. Um, People have said, I, it's hard to believe that Papa would have been so hard on her, you know, and and that that always like that's like a gonk moment for me when my chin drops and I'm like, wow, you know, people really don't know how even nice white people <laughs> treat people of color sometimes, 
you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice uh, white people. There it is. <laughs> yeah, and it's like you know, no, I guess okay. Yeah. You know, maybe that's maybe that's not how you are, and I'm glad of that. But <laughs> anyway, um, so things like that. So it was a very personal book on that level mm. in in depicting in depicting things that I have that have happened to me, um, and um, and uh, trying to and one thing that I did not intend and yet you could have kind of predicted it is the the slur in Hannah's day um which is mentioned a few times in the book was dirty chinaman which you know doesn't sound so horrible now compared to what sometimes people call other people um and so so that is dealt with in the book that there's a couple of different scenes there and then um this book came out and my tour to promote it was truncated i had to go home early at the beginning of the of march because of the coronavirus. And suddenly there was this significance to the book that mm. I had never anticipated while I was writing it with um, people in positions of authority, you know, calling this the Chinese virus and the Kung flu, you know, and, and things uh, like yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I know one in particular that yes. <laughs> said a number of things on record. And I have literally had people... You know, I, I always wear a mask when I go out and I have literally had people move away from me towards white people who are unmasked. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I'm I've so sorry. Yeah. And I've had yeah. and every almost every Asian I know has had an experience like that. I've um, been meanwhile in thinking about this and think just to say it for the good of for the good of white people walking through the world and being aware of your actions, I'll put it that way. Um, I do car loop every morning with my colleagues and um, uh, another, um, I will say co-conspirator and I, uh, she and I were talking about how, are we aware of how often we're cleaning our hands how often we're grabbing hand sanitizer and after which child it's happening. Are we being consistent and doing it after every single child? Or are we in any way subconsciously going and grabbing hand sanitizer after we open the door um, from a family that is a family of color or not? Right. Are we aware of just more of that? Are are we working? Are we functioning at the level of an awareness of how could this be perceived when I'm going and, and getting hand sanitizer after opening car doors or after helping a child. Um, because I would, uh, no, because, because whether I think I'm doing it on purpose or not, there is something in me compelling me to take that action as with you to move for, for someone to move away from you and walk toward other people or not. There's something in you compelling you to do that and to confront what that is to ask, why am I doing that? Um, so that we can be more aware is is important. And I think it's awful that that is happening to you, Linda Sue. I apologize. I don't know who I'm apologizing to, though. <laughs> but I just am more saying to you, my friend, yeah. I don't like that you have to, that that is an experience you have had walking through the world. And and that is, again, something that, you know, the, the top-down thing, if there were a different attitude at the top, it might be happening less. Mm, I'm, yeah. I'm nearly, I'm nearly certain that it that it would be happening, that it would be happening less. Um, I think back to just things like um, Princess Diana visiting a an AIDS hospital and sitting on the bed and shaking hands with those patients. Yeah. 
you know, to show, you know, because science is important, right? <laughs> Her knowledge that she wasn't going to get AIDS, you know, and right. and, uh, and how that, that actually had a significant impact on people's attitudes towards HIV, you know. Um, so, so those th- kinds of things can matter. And, um, you know, uh, but it was just so, so striking to me to be in the airport going home from my tour, mm. having it cut off early, you know, and... Um, and 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 having that experience, you know, um, back in March, um, uh, it's yeah, it's 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 um, it it just shows the it, that every generation has its own work to do with social justice. Yep. And we hopefully keep bending that arc <laughs> and keep you know pushing it towards that the problems that we have are certainly always different. You know, to to make sure that we're not making the same mistakes, to to make different mistakes. Different mistakes is good. Mistakes is fine. You know, as long different as mistakes are good. That's yeah. That's interesting to say it that way. Yes. Yeah. The yep. discomfort that you feel for those of us in different different people are facing different discomfort um, in uh, being called out for things that we have taken for granted. I don't just want to say white people because it's not straight right. people, abled people right. are. Uh, we are, uh, I think many of us are being forced to confront and I, I, my, my wish for everyone is that we do lean into the discomfort that we lean into, uh, seeking justice over just being kind. Um, and that we, that we really work toward, toward reconciliation, recognizing what harm have I done in the way that I've walked through the world and how can I do better at, at doing no harm for others. Yeah. Yeah. Before we go, I'm so grateful for our time. I know, you know, I'm always grateful for our time together, but I do want to make sure we just take a, a moment to highlight that you've got a picture book coming out too. I've been seeing on social media that you've got a book coming out with Debbie Owe, and I'm so yes. excited about that. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? Sure. And I'm um, also should apologize that, I mean, it's just, it's, it's your nature as a host, but I know that we off, we have, we wandered a great deal off the subject of the book itself for which I apologize. <laughs> but did uh, we though? I feel like what we talked about was so <laughs> on point. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad. I, I'm, I'm so grateful that, that, I mean, so much of what I love about this podcast is, is, is exploring the, the idea that in some ways it's impossible to divorce the the creation from the creator and i love exploring th- that um and so as much as we didn't talk about perhaps note for note what was going on in hannah's world in so many ways we were we were talking just about that and i and, and so i am excited for listeners who have not read your book to have listened to this and then read with this lens, because this is a lens that I did not get to experience reading your book. Um, but we will come at it all in different ways, and it'll be exciting for us then to to share about about the story. So thank I you. Hope. Yeah. I hope. Thank you. <laughs> yes, and it's um it's a global read aloud selection for this year. So yeah, it is. Will, you and Indian have... No More, Tracy Sorrell's book. I'm like, this is a, this is a good year. It's a good yeah, year so for I readers. Have... I will add this podcast when you when you let me know that it's uh, live to the resources for for the book for that. Gladly will. Um, all right. So Gerpel and Preen actually came out at the end of August, and it is um, as you said, illustrated by Debbie Ridpath Oe, and it's actually Debbie's concept. She has had for several years a gallery of broken crayon art, yes, which she has. I, 
adored. <laughs> and finally, there is now a story to go with that broken crayon art called Gerpel and Preen, and it's two robots who have a broken crayon cosmic adventure. So um, it, it has to do with a rocket ship and lots and lots of crayons. <laughs> and um, it was it was a re real challenge to write because usually I just write a picture book, right, and the illustrator illustrates it. But in this case, it began with, okay, this is going to be a book that uses <laughs> Debbie's broken crayon art. <laughs> You're working backwards. <laughs> yes. And, and that was, and then, you know, I'm an uh, old dog, no new tricks. And I was like, well, I don't know. So my first drafts were just awful. Page one, crayon breaks. P page two, crayon breaks. Page three, crayon breaks. And, and the editor is Justin Chanda at um, Simon & Schuster. And he said, Linda Sue, you just, Let's let's do a story here, <laughs> and then we will figure out how the broken crayon art works into it. You know, so I'm I'm thrilled with what we ended up with. I think it's a lot of fun, and especially again, um, one thing I was trying to get at there is that one of the robots just is personality wise throws her hands up in despair and says she can't do this, she can't she can't fix this, she doesn't have the stuff that she needs. While the other robot takes whatever comes out of the broken crayon and figures out a way to use it. Um, with, you know, whatever you want to call it, lateral thinking or outside the box or whatever. Not She uses things not what they were intended to be, like, for example, a tablecloth, um, which she eventually tears up into strips to use to uh, tie things up and haul things around. <laughs> so I wanted this book to be about, you know, reusing and recycling and repurposing, um, because I think that is how today's young people are going to have to save the planet. And once again, as, as you were saying, which I appreciated very much, and I thank you for that, you know, these these things that are important points or quote unquote lessons, um, you know, need to be almost subliminal. Yeah. You know, um, this is just a funny picture book about two robots. But hopefully, <laughs> hopefully there'll be a little bit of practice in there about, you know, looking at things um, and and not wasting. Well, you know, um, Debbie's a friend of the show and I adore her and. I, gosh, how long, Linda Sue, have we known Debbie doing this on Instagram and on social media, taking broken objects and drawing them into things and just showing how stories come from everything around us. Yes. So for you to take that and sort of like backwards build it, I feel I, like I, it's I, like a <laughs> Top Chef challenge of like, here's this famous dish. Now you deconstruct it and rebuild it again into a thing. How... It just works a different part of your brain. So I'm so excited to see this book. Is that reverse um, engineering? Did I do reverse engineering? <laughs> Can I say kind that? of reverse engineering? I feel like it was. <laughs> I feel like it was. Uh, reverse in... No, it can't be reverse inspiration. That sounds bad. But, <laughs> but, but to have... To be inspired by... To have that, that, that creativity creativity play that Debbie plays out in front of us um, be your muse be your inspiration for telling this story and taking it in in a in in sort of a on the same spiritual journey if you will that that Debbie's work does about creativity and invention and and, and thinking and, and 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 how you the individual will will ultimately create what's in you that what comes out is an expression of what's inside so that's wonderful i can't wait to see it congratulations on that happy book birthday i guess as as of when we're recording this it just came out ish right 
So, um, and can I tell you about one more book that's spring 2021 or is that too far? Oh, lo- no, let's please tease okay. it out. Who knows okay. when people will listen to this because of, um, you know, podcasts have a, a life of their own. So sure. Right. Um, so this is from Clarion Books, Houghton Mifflin and, and, or HMH as they're calling themselves now. And, um, it's called the one thing you'd save. It's a picture book for older elementary. So, um, it's the premise is a teacher in a classroom and she says, okay, imagine that your home is on fire. All the people and your pets are safe. What is the one thing you would save? And so um, about 18 students um, each answer her in a poem, in a short poem. Oh, wow. Who and is so, illustrating this? Do you have an illustrator? I, by now you would, yeah. Right. A new illustrator named Robert Sehang, um, S-A-E hyphen H-E-N-G. He is an illustrator, but this is his first picture book. He's done other kinds of art before. Um, so, um, uh, and the, and the, um, I've written one poetry collection called Tap Dancing on the Roof, which is a collection of Korean shijo, which is sort of the Korean, I mean, most, m- many students and readers are familiar with Japanese haiku. And that's, of course, a Japanese verse form. And shijo is a Korean verse form that is every bit as enchanting as haiku and should be just as famous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I knew um, shijo. Uh, I've written in shijo. Right. So so I wrote Tap Dancing on the Roof several years ago. And yeah. that was so this this collection, the one thing you'd save, uses the shijo line and syllable count, but does not limit it to three lines. So some of the poems are much longer. So that some like somebody whose poem is 12 lines would have four shijo, you know, as their poem. Um, so I don't stick to the three line shijo count, but I do stick to the syllabic count and the general cool. philosophy. Yeah, so you yeah. have, there are many things going on with this. You have shijo that children will study your book and write themselves, which is beautiful. You have all of your readers, you have to guess, are going to be like, well, here's the one thing I would save. You're yeah, inviting them to tell you. And then also this debut illustrator gets to illustrate a book by Linda Sue Park. Are you kidding me? That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait. That's uh, You said spring, right? Yes, spring 2021. Wonderful. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. I'm so grateful we had a chance to connect again. Before we go, um, I'd love to ask you that I will see a library full of children tomorrow morning. Is there a message I can bring to them from you? Oh, wow. Um, yes. Um, um, reading good books can A, help your dreams come true, and B, help you save the world. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by me, Matthew Winner, in my library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 600 episodes at matthewcwinner.com. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and don't reflect the ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out the show? Become a patron, and you can directly impact and help to sustain the podcast. Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that is a very good thing indeed. Thank you.
We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cosy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.